You can live a life without meditating. It's absolutely possible. So I don't want to peddle anything that's a lie. But the truth is, is that will you be satisfied? Will you be at peace? Will you be in acceptance of your reality? Will you be able to achieve things? Will you be in equanimity? No, probably not. I mean, the chances of it are pretty slim because yeah, I'm just like everyone else. And so I'm pretty clear that if I change so much while using these tools, then everyone else would too. Like, I'm just like everyone else. There's nothing special about me. And me without meditation, me without all my practices, me without my commitment and my sobriety and all the things that I do to be the person that I am today, I'm a very different person. At a psychedelics and sobriety event in Brooklyn, New York, I found myself yelling at the top of my lungs to blasting death metal with a hundred strangers. Not your typical meditation session. This was my introduction to the powerful force of nature that is Biet Simkin. Biet was raised by a shaman in New York City. She has spirituality in her blood, but she turned away from it after a string of heart-wrenching, life-changing events. And her return to it is a wild story of courage, pain, loss, and profound insights. Biet is now a world-renowned meditation leader and breathwork teacher dubbed the David Bowie of meditation. She's the co-founder of Club Soda, a sober curious event series in New York City, and she's been featured in Vogue, Forbes, Elle, and Time Magazine. She's also the author of Don't Just Sit There, an award-winning book on practical tools for meditation. Now, Biet is 100% unapologetic. She holds very little back, and that's a big deal because she's lived and survived a life equal parts tragedy and beauty. Because of this, I do want to warn you, there are a few potentially triggering things that come up in our conversation, as a large part of Biet's story is quite confrontational. But I think that if you sit with what she's sharing and really bear witness to her vulnerability and the magic that emerged from her experiences, that you'll be struck with some powerful aha moments. I really think you're going to love her. She's edgy, raw, intense, and captivating. She's like no other meditation teacher, but more so like no other human I've met. I'm Zoe Weldon, and straight from the mountains in Denver, Colorado, and one of the most badass women I've met, here's Biet on Didn't See That Coming. Hi, Biet. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Zoe. Nice to be together. So the way that I was actually introduced to you was, for me, quite a memorable experience because I went to an event in New York City and... I didn't know anything about it. My friend flew from Australia and I met her and she said, listen, I've got you a ticket for something and strap yourself in. It's all she said to me. And I was like, okay. So we went to the With Hotel in Brooklyn and we attended a Club Soto event, which is these amazing Sober Curious series events that you've co-created. And you had a panel of eight people and you talked about psychedelics and sobriety and it was like mind blowing. I loved it. And in this room of like a hundred plus strangers, you took us through a series of meditations, exercises that were really some of the most, I'm going to say powerful that I have felt. And the screaming at the top of our lungs to like death metal was not what I was expecting. And it was strangely freeing. It was very freeing. And I would love to know, where did your practice come from and why is this so powerful? it evolved over a long period of time. And I will say I was like eight months pregnant at that event. And I was guiding that screaming meditation through death metal while pregnant. So for anyone who's listening, and it's like, you can do anything at any time. I grew up in the streets of Queens. I grew up rocking like Timberland boots and gold door knocker earrings and getting knocked down in the streets by like gangsters with like knives and like almost getting raped, almost getting killed, getting chased by chainsaws hanging out in the projects, drinking 40s in the playground. Like my life was not, <laughs> it was not whatever people think it was. And so my brother was this heavy metal guy. So I grew up, he was a drummer in like metal bands. And so I grew up going to bars and listening to Metallica and Megadeth and all that crap. And so it's part of my history being a rock and roller. You know, I was really into Patti Smith, really into David Byrne. You know, I'm really into rock and roll. And I was signed to Sony when I was 18 years old. So I have this whole history in music. But when I started creating meditation experiences, my whole mode and my goal was to fuse the world of music, cultural experiences, meditation, and art spaces. So like in the worlds of beauty, with the worlds of meditation, because I felt like meditation was always like 
oh, let's go sit on like a cushion in this weird room somewhere. Yeah. And pretend we're all serene and like touch our third eye and be like, Om Shanti. And that was one world. And then I was in this other world where everyone like got really dressed up in fancy clothes and met in art galleries and acted like they didn't care about spirituality. And I felt like those two worlds were very much missing, both very much missing something. And I thought, why can't we just have both? Why can't we have a cultural experience that's music-based and meditation, which is really spiritual and connected to divinity and God? And why can't we have that all in a really bougie, fancy space like the Wyeth Hotel, where everyone's really beautifully dressed and drinking fancy mocktails? And why not? But when I came up with this idea, there was nothing like that on the scene. So it was from there that my career took off like a wildfire. Wow. Because that makes sense. Because you came from a real past of like sex, drugs, and rock and roll into meditation. It's amazing that you've actually melded them all and created what you're doing. Yes. To be fair, my father was an awakened shaman. So it was like being raised by Eckhart Tolle. But I took a turn. I had a very, 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 very tragic, painful, painful, tragic life. And so during that time, I turned away on some levels from the mystical side that my father was preaching and teaching my whole life. I just couldn't handle the pain. I was in so much pain. And when you say pain, are you talking about like internal suffering or physical suffering? I've never had a physical, thank God. No, but my mom died when I was six, very suddenly. And then my whole family kind of dropped dead one by one. So it was a lot of funerals. And then my best friend hung himself. And then my first daughter passed away of sudden infant death syndrome. And then my house burnt down. And it was just kind of like a very tumultuous youth that before the age of 29, which is when I got sober, my life was a giant disaster. (laughs) Wow. Because I know that you're 11 years sober now because for you, and when I think of sober, I think of like alcohol, but it was much more for you, wasn't it? It wasn't just alcohol. Oh no. I was like a heroin cocaine every day kind of girl. (laughs) You know, a little bit of heroin every day. (laughs) You're talking about being in this, like a lot of pain and having the upbringing that you're having and going through, as you've said, this like tumultuousness of tragedy. You were talking about being raised by your father and kind of leaving that world. And then you came back to it again, did you? Yeah, he died. He was the last to die of all the people in my life that died. Saturn Returns is that, right? Saturn really returned for me. And then I was kind of like on the precipice of becoming like a high-end prostitute when I was like, something's awry with this. Like, this doesn't feel aligned. I've never been, even in my most hoary, fucked up on heroin days, like I've just never been that kind of girl. You know, I really was pretty clear on my beliefs and my morals and my standards, even though I strayed quite far from them in my using, I just could tell something was off and I kind of crawled into sobriety. And it was almost 12 years ago. In January, I'll have 12 years sober. And so I just crawled in like being like, I'll do anything to get sober. Was meditation part of that at that point? It became part of it right away. But it was also like, I couldn't meditate for more than like 15 minutes back then because I was so fucked up. It took years really to get away from the damage that the heroin and cocaine had done to my body and brain. And so, I mean, it took a couple of years just to get to that point, but it took another five years. I mean, I was poor. I was this broke artist. I was just like writing songs crazy time, crazy time. But I was blessed because as soon as I got sober, it was like I felt like a carpet had rolled out from the sky and was just like carrying me. At this point in the interview, I felt a heavy sense of empathy for Biet's story. And her sharing the vulnerability of crawling to sobriety stops my brain. I've heard her speak about the trauma that impacted her life and about her openness around her addictions. But to have it spoken to me was very different Here was this woman who had been through so much, traumas that I could only imagine but not viscerally understand. I was struck between wanting to just sit and hear her entire story of survival and wanting to find out more about her capacity to heal herself through recovery and meditation. You'll hear in this next part my stumble. I chose the latter path but with far less grace than I would have liked because I made my next question be about the practical and not the emotional. It's so interesting because obviously like we're going through a lot. 2020 is a pretty wild year yeah. and meditation is something that has been coming to the forefront more and more. So 
What does meditation give us and why is that so important right now? You can live a life without meditating. It's absolutely possible. So I don't want to peddle anything that's a lie. But the truth is, is that will you be satisfied? Will you be at peace? Will you be in acceptance of your reality? Will you be able to achieve things? Will you be in equanimity? No, probably not. I mean, the chances of it are pretty slim because I'm just like everyone else. And so I'm pretty clear that if I change so much while using these tools, then everyone else would too. Like, I'm just like everyone else. There's nothing special about me. And me without meditation, me without all my practices, me without my commitment and my sobriety and all the things that I do to be the person that I am today, I'm a very different person. I'm still really interesting. And I'm sure that I would be like a very fun person to hang out with while you're drinking wine at like a crappy party. But is that really my vision? Like, was that my vision? No, that wasn't my vision to become like some poor person at a party drinking wine and pretending to not care. That was basically my career, to pretend I didn't care. And if that was that a coping mechanism to get through what you were getting through? I think so. It's fun. I mean, like, I'm glad I made all those mistakes. I, I like sex and strange situations and wandering through the street crying at five in the morning. All that stuff's great. And if it didn't have such insane repercussions and price to pay with that, I'd still be doing it. That sounds great. Like I sometimes watch films about people who are still lost and confused. And I'm like, oh, remember the days, but I'm not lost or confused anymore. And so my life looks very different. So it's really a choice. Like your life is filled with a lot of sex energy. That sex energy can either be basically into rebellion. Like you can go into the night, you can drink, you can fuck, you can steal, you can commit crimes, you can lie, you can gossip, you can all the things that I did when I was drinking and using. And that's sexy and fun. And there's going to be a lot of like amazing aha white light experiences when you're like snorting coke off of someone's tits by a pool somewhere. That's going to be amazing. But the rest of your life will be paid for by that. So will you have money and security? Probably not. Will you have relationships that last? Probably not. Will you feel confident and like truly like you know that you're in your purpose and essence? Probably not. And so like those were all the prices that I paid before. Today, I take all my sex energy and I funnel them into these practices, which is meditation, prayer, working out, eating healthy, being an incredible wife, being an incredible mother, being an incredible entrepreneur, making buco amounts of money, traveling the world, staying at five-star resorts, photo shoots, being featured in Vogue and Elle and Forbes as this meditation guru of the next generation. So those are the things that I get to do today. But I don't get to be up at five in the morning, wandering around the sidewalk with a fucking Jack Daniels in my hand being like, I just don't know what the meaning of it all is. I don't get to do that anymore because I'm not that person. So you have to make a choice, but it is just sex energy. And it's just really a question of what you're going to do with your sex energy. But I know when I was out there, I was so, so envious of people who had their shit together. Like I was like, oh my God, like, can you imagine like waking up in the morning? Like what? Like I used to wake up at 8 PM and eat Chinese food. That was about, and then I was like, let's do laundry. You know, I mean, there was nothing going on. You know, it was total insanity. It sounds like too, with the difference in those two choice in the choice of the way that you could actually live your life. And one of them is that kind of wild sex energy space, but that everything takes you into a choice. And it sounds like the choice that you took is something that allows your soul to feel a different way. What allows my soul to be in charge? Like before my soul was not in charge. Today, my soul is in charge, but I pay for that. I pay for that. For my soul is wild, infinitely possible, infinitely valuable source of energy. And to have access to that, you've got to do a bunch of shit that I think a lot of people don't want to do. You know, if you want to drink and smoke cigarettes and fuck people you don't know, you're not going to have the same kind of container to hold the soul in. You could visit the soul, you'll have flashes, but you're going to probably be really high when it happens. And you don't know how you got there and you won't know how to get back. And then you pay for it with two fucking days of being hung over and sleeping. So it's really just a question of like, it's the same soul. 
everyone's getting access. So it's how much access, like my access is really quite a lot. I get access all through the day. I get access almost every day. And not only that, but I get to then co-create with that divine energy to write a best-selling book, to write films, to release two records, to be traveled all over the world with incredible people. I live a life that, and I have a relationship I've been with with the same person for 11 years. That's not something I could have done when I was drinking. There's just no way. So many people right now are dealing with anxiety and worry, and especially in this year, and COVID has brought so much to the surface. And I feel like we can't really distract ourselves right now with hopping on a plane or going shopping or all of those kind of fun distraction points. And people are really being faced to force themselves and their worries. And you wrote a book that couldn't be more relevant or timely right now, and I love it, which is Don't Just Sit There, 44 Insights to Get Your Meditation Practice Off the Cushion and Into the Real World, which is so beautifully timed. And I'd love to know, because of what people are going through and what you've put in the book, can you tell us about the book? And can you explain why 44 laws? And are there any laws in that that can help us now? Yeah, I would say all of them would be helpful now. Because the thing is, is that you're underneath all of them every day. You're not technically underneath them if you're in a state of love then you're only underneath 24 of them, but you're still under a fuck ton of laws. So the idea is like being a human means that you're under a lot of laws. And it's interesting what we do with that. What do we do with that? I want to live a life where most of the time I'm connecting with an invisible power. I want to live a life where most of the time I'm taking chances and risks that scare me and I'm doing exciting things that are fun and exciting. I want to live a life where I'm feeling my feelings. I'm not like numbed out. And all of those things require me to live above these laws because these laws actually prevent me from having these experiences. So some of them are like the law of imagination, which many people are in right now. I mean, we're about to have an election here in the States everyone's aware of it because it's a global tragedy what's happened over the last four years and everyone is being affected by it. But like people are in imagination. They're in so much fear about things that could happen. And is there lizard people? And did Hillary Clinton eat a baby? Like none of this is real. I know I just heard that recently. That's, that was a rumor that was going around. It's just ridiculous. But imagination contaminates our own lives too. It's not just political. So it's like, oh, that girl looked at me funny. She must think that I'm a bitch. Or, oh, that person only offered me this amount of money. That must mean that they don't think I'm worth anything. Meanwhile, like people are generally just offering an amount of money because that's what they have. So it's like not personal at all. You know what I mean? Like if Goldman Sachs contacts you, they may also have only allotted 200 bucks for your services and that may not cover it. So it's imagination and it just drags us down. There's so many laws in that book that the fun thing about the book too, is that it's a verification book, right? So you just take the laws, you try it out. And if it, you see that it's true, you've learned something. If you don't see it's true, then just toss it, move on to the next law. But generally speaking, like I have found when I tried these laws out in my own life, I was like, oh my God, this is rampant in my own life. And these laws are preventing me from being in a state of bliss or connection with others. So the book is about 44 laws that are overarching over all human beings. So it's an influence that we're all being like, their influences that we're feeling in our lives. Correct. And so by breaking down those 44 laws, you're giving, explain the verification process as well. So you just kind of see the law, you see that way it's working on you. And then you use one of the laws, which is divided attention to see yourself in an active meditation, which is a meditation you can do while you're having sex or while you're making eggs or while you're going to work. You can do it while you're doing other things. That's the point of fourth way work is that it's meditation in the real world. So like my whole thing, I always talk about like, okay, you're winning a Grammy. Great. You're winning a Grammy, but chances are you're freaked out. You're really stressed. And like, you're in a room filled with like fabulous people. Everyone's dressed to the nines. It's very hard to divide your attention at that point. But that is kind of the beautiful thing because if you're able to become present at the Grammys, then you really aren't at the Grammys anymore. You're in presence. Presence is a place. People think that 
there's somewhere to go. But the point is, is that there's nowhere to go. Every place is exactly the same. So if you can attain presence in the worst, worst case scenario, like hospital when you just got into an accident, or if you can attain presence in a moment that's super mundane, like the DMV, or you can attain presence at the Grammys when you were winning a Grammy, or if you can attain presence in, you know, an escalator up to the D train, like those are totally different places seemingly. But the idea is that you reach them in the same way. And then once you're in presence, all things become this incredible thing. And so I'm not going to say that all your whole life is going to be lived in this state of like multi-orgasm, like touching your boobs and like flailing with like crystalline light and sniffing Palo Santo. Like it's not going to be like that, but there you have an aim. You have an aim to live a life that feels like all of that, you know? And so to me, like I used to watch these films when I was growing up, I'm sure you've seen some of these films, but there's films that are like about this character who's like enlightened and he or she like has tea ceremonies and like meditates and they're like, never have a flaw, never have a problem. And I was always like, one day I'll be like that kind of person. And what I found out is that I've never become that person a hundred percent. Like the best that I can say is that my life is like 80% that. 80%. That's pretty fucking good. Mm. But there's still 20% of humanness where like my husband will do something and I'm like, what the fuck? Or like my baby will be like jumping off into a knife, like off of the counter. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like you're going to die. And then I, I can compose myself, but the laws are there. So it's a question of what you want the math to look like. If you're boggled by something, if something is crippling you, whether it be romance or finance or career or family matters or family history or location or drug abuse or alcohol abuse or sex abuse, any of those things, the laws are the things that are keeping you in the same loop over and over and over. So if you can't see them, how are you going to get out? If you don't know that these laws are the things that are keeping you in that prison. Yeah. Okay. So you spoke about divided attention, fourth way. Mm -hmm. Did I get that right? Fourth way and the laws. So there's lots of good juicy stuff that's in there. And it sounds like divided attention allows you to be present in the moment and still attaining a sense of not being thrown about by the emotions or responding or reacting. You're actually taking a beat to respond. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. And then you talked about fourth way. Yeah. Now, what's fourth way? Fourth way, it's like an ancient mysticism that was brought to the West by a man named Gurdjieff. And he was a teacher of my father's and I'm a student of this work my whole life. And fourth way is basically enlightenment for someone who's not going to become a monk or give up their belongings. It's enlightenment for someone who's still going to buy real estate and Ah. get married, have children, like do things in the real world. And the idea is... It's finding a state of enlightenment secretly, kind of, because you can't, like, if you're like a businessman or like a finance guy or a Hollywood director, you can't just be going around like Om Shanti 24 hours a day. You have shit to do. So it really is a question of, do you want enlightenment anyway? Because for me, like, I want enlightenment first. I want bliss first, but I also want to be on the cover of Vogue. So that's fourth way in a nutshell. It's being able to bridge those two worlds. And obviously, from doing your meditation and being witness to what you do, that makes a lot of sense because it is about being very real in the moment. Like that screaming to death metal, not screaming, but like yelling to it was very like, I'm in this moment. Like this is very real. I'm in a room with people. I'm not like on my own, eyes closed. Like it was very raw, super real. So that makes sense where that comes from. And are there any particular laws within that book that would really help us to understand what we're going through? I know you talked about the law of imagination. Is there another one that would be really helpful for us to understand? Like, I know when I was looking, I was reading so much in that book I loved and so many moments when I read sections in it that were like, oh my God, I've never even thought of that as being a law. For me, it was really like the law of shoulds was a big one. Oh, yeah. that got me. Nice. Got it. Okay. But you talk about the law of accidents. 
And I feel like that is something, especially 2020, because 2020 is like another thing, another thing, another thing, another, like it's just lumped on top of each other. So can you walk us through the law of accidents so that we can kind of understand now? I would say that this is not an accident, this 2020. And I wouldn't say it's underneath the law of accident. Law of accident means you're, you've gone astray. And I actually believe that this year and what's happening right now is absolutely written and baked into the karmic destiny of our lives. And I would say that maybe the best law to describe what's happening right now is the law of denying force. And so denying force is just, it's within the law of seven. If you read in the book, it's called the law of seven or the law of success. Inside of success, there's baked in two sets of denying force. And as humans, we tend to be denying force blind, which means we want everything to be streamlined from beginning to end. So we want to start a mission and have it be like really successful right away. But the way that nature works is that it imprints us with several denying force points, one that's minimal and one that's extraordinarily difficult. Denying force is just helping us along, but it helps us along by making things difficult. So it's like a difficulty. If you stop looking at difficulties as like something that's bad and you start looking at them as something that's an opportunity, then it changes the difficulty. It just, but it doesn't change it from being difficult. It just changes how you're using it. What I hear in that is that if you're looking at that law, looking at what's happening in your life from a different perspective, you're able to access, I would imagine, something that's an understanding that's not from fear. It's from curiosity, which I would imagine is, I don't know, is, is it a better way to look at things in life? I don't know if it's better. I just know that it works for me. And I find that I like things that make me feel really in flow, like I can keep moving the other version, if I don't look at it that way, it just gets stuck. So I can be stuck or I can be in movement. And it's really just a choice of what's better for me. Sometimes I like being stuck for a couple of days. I just am like, oh, I'm so confused. It's beneficial somehow, but I just can't do it for too long anymore. I'm also sober. And so I just have this like refined level of clarity around what's happening with me. For people who are then going through this year and they're learning to harness what you're speaking about is to get to a place of seeing everything that's happening is that it's exactly how it's meant to be happening and to really be in like curiosity of like, okay, almost flipping in your mind of like, why is this happening? Being more in a place of questioning it so that you can be more open to the potential that can happen on the other side. Correct. Yeah. There's a a sentence that I heard you say that I loved, which was, that I can be Zen AF and 100% with everything that makes me broken. Mm. And there was something to that that kind of really took my breath away because it allowed me to be, it was like, I'm okay, I can be me, I can be broken, I can love myself and be in this moment. Like it gave me permission to be where I am right now. Yeah. And moving through this year and having highs and lows and just allowing me to be in this space. And I think I'd love to know, like, how did you arrive at that intersection of beliefs? Hmm. It was just, just a journey of pain, lots and lots of pain, because I felt like I would have these white light moments. And I really thought each time I had a white light moment, first of all, I felt very special because I had a white light moment. I thought, what's a white light moment? What is that? It's like a mo- an epiphany or like a moment where you remember completely who you are and the meaning of life. And you're like in a state, in a heightened state, sort of like what Eckhart Tolle describes in the beginning of one of his books, like what happened to him that made him this enlightened person. And so I just thought like Eckhart Tolle or like Ram Das and all these people that came before me, I was just like, well, there's the white light moment. And then that's it. You're like, you're free. And I had so many white light moments and they were very, 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 very real. And I thought that I was, A, I thought I was special because again, the only people I'd heard about talking about white light moments were these very special people like Ram Dass and Eckhart Tolle or just some two examples. But I was like, they're talking about that. I just had that. And as these moments kept happening, every time I had a white light experience, I was like, I've arrived. It's finally happened. I'm this enlightened person who's going to finally be recognized as like this amazing, whatever, the Dalai Lama or whatever. And 
it never happened, A, that it would last forever. The white light experience always bled into creative energy, and then that bled into work life, and then that bled into crumbling down and feeling like total shit. And then that led to another white light moment. And that was like a cycle. And what led to me being able to be okay with both of them was that I realized it was really maybe, maybe never going to end. I finally saw that I don't know what happened to Eckhart Tolle or like Ramdas. Maybe that that's not their story. But for me, it didn't end that way. It was like, okay, I guess we're just in it for another white light experience, you know? And I stopped making the white light experience be about my value. And I stopped making the darker times be about my value too. Like I just realized this is my number. Like we all get a dose and I suffer sometimes. I really suffer. And I feel like I thought that I could escape suffering. I had read Buddhism, you know, I'd read the Bhagavad Gita. And I just thought like there was a way to escape Maya, a way to escape suffering. And what I've come to in my own journey is that that is not what's happened. I'm not escaping suffering. I just have a different relationship with suffering than I used to have. Hmm. That's very heartwarming to hear because I feel like we tend to think that people like you've referenced, Eckhart Tolle and Ram Dass and even yourself for people who are looking towards meditation teachers, that life is all just kind of this ball of bliss. And it's all easy. Like I think a lot of people think that and they, we forget that we're learning through you as you go through those cycles of like, that you can find those white light moments. And then you do as well, fall down and crash within that and then pull yourself back up again. And it sounds like those 44 laws in the book have been a part of like a birth from that that's allowed you to just keep coming back to yourself, coming back to yourself through those moments. Very much so. Yeah. And also, I don't see one as myself and one is not anymore. I just, to me, there's no back. There's no like, preferential. I love feeling enlightened and I love my life feeling very easy. And I love how much of that I get to experience today, but I no longer feel like the 20% or whatever percent it is, that's deep sadness, depression, like fatigue, anger, like overwhelm. I don't feel like those parts are bad anymore. I just think they're beautiful and it's how I was created. And I don't think I would be who I am without those things. I wouldn't be the brilliant writer. I wouldn't be an amazing songwriter. I wouldn't be any of these things. So why am I poo-pooing the flaws? And that's, I think people, well, I need to hear that. I think people need to hear that too, is that we are whole and complete in all our gunk and glory. Like Mm -hmm. we are perfect on both sides, the yin and the yang, make up who we are. It's nice to hear because I feel like I spent a lot of time trying to make myself better, to heal all the gunk and to slowly get to a point now and working through 12-step programs that I'm in and just being able to come to a place of like complete appreciation for all of it right now and that it is perfect. And there's a beauty in moving through life when you can understand that there are two sides to you. I'd love to talk about your breath work. I watched your session with Russell Brand, which was amazing. And I'll actually link to the video that I watched of you walking people through the breathwork. And I did the technique. I have to say, it was very profound. And for those who haven't tried it, and I'll describe it slightly yet, and I hope I do it justice here, but just you do three sets of deep breathing in and out, and then you do one final deep breath, and you look up to the sky hands up, holding your breath, and then you hit your chest and release the breath. And when I did that, there was this kind of euphoria that happened. Like, what is happening and why is breath and connection to it so important? It's a bigger question and probably way too philosophical answer, but we were born and when we were, we took our first breath. And since then, we've been dying ever since. It's kind of like an atomic bomb life in the sense that you're birthed and then people say, one day I'm going to die. But I don't think that's true. I really think that our death is imbued into our birth. It's like part of our birth. And so when I do this breath work and when I guide this breath work, it's really an, an effort to connect people with that moment and to help them to remember that there is no difference between that moment, this moment, and the moment of their death. And this idea that they're living this life that has a timeline and one day and worry, stress, 
it's like all so dumb. And this breath helps you to relax deeply into a state where you can remember the present moment. And there's nothing in the present moment except for love, nothing. It's just all this gorgeousness. And so I love that breath work for that reason. In your Style Like You video, which I loved, it was so fun to watch you, which is this great YouTube series about like radical, honest stories of total self-acceptance. And in it, you said that when shocks happen, your higher self enters. Mm. And I'm so curious, like, how do you know who your higher self is? And with these shocks, like, can they help us know when we're off our path? Yeah, I don't think we get shocks that are out of alignment. All shocks are for a reason. They're like storytellers. They're here to bestow a message for us. I find that shocks are a beautiful point of coming to remembrance, remembering something that's very important. When my house burnt down this year, I immediately was like, what am I missing? Something's missing. And I was able to find what that was and like redirect and become more whole as a result of that shock. And now we're dealing with a global shock, which is the pandemic. And this is a shock. It's a shock for everyone. And many people are falling deeper and deeper into their bad habits because of it and using it as an excuse. And many of us are actually doing the opposite. We're using COVID as an opportunity to go skyrocket, to really speed dial into our destinies in a way that we couldn't have done if we were still being like in the throes of chaos in life. But what is the higher self, you asked? Mm. I really think the higher self is just the soul is what I was speaking about there. Like having access to one's soul. Your soul is so simple and so beautiful. Your soul is infinitely valuable. It doesn't drop. It doesn't rise in value. It's always the same. That is what we come into contact with when we have a shock. How do you know it's your higher voice? It's a question I've actually thought of, but never asked somebody about. Like, how do you know it's your higher self? Well, one tool that's really helpful to know whether it's your soul or if it's your ego, which is the other thing that people like to talk about, is it's much, much quieter. Like, it just is very calm, very peaceful. It's never stressed out. It's always like, oh, maybe you shouldn't do that. Like, it's never like, eat that fucking cupcake, you little bitch. That's not your higher self. No one talks like that in that realm. And there's nothing wrong with that realm. It's just that the realm of like the fat Italian mobster telling you to eat a cupcake, that's not the soul. There's nothing wrong with your Italian mobster. There's nothing wrong with cupcakes. It's just a matter of discerning what's what. And when you're talking about those shocks too, I just wanted to ask, do the shocks have to be big shocks? The idea of law of shocks is actually that you can implement your own shocks, right? So today... When I wake up, I meditate, I work out, I take cold showers, I do breath work, I do free service, I work with private clients, like the list goes on and on with ways in which I'm inserting shocks. Why are those things shocking? Because I'm not naturally that way. I don't think anyone is. Most people, again, are just born with a proclivity to just go downhill. So drinking, worrying, gossiping, hating life, bitching, complaining, hating themselves, hating their bodies, hating their families, resenting everyone around them, resenting money, feeling afraid of money. That's what we're set to do. So if you insert shocks into your life of things that you normally wouldn't do, which I would call an opposite action, let's say. So if I insert opposite actions, like I don't want to take a cold shower. I never want to take a cold shower, but I do it every day because it's wonderful for my circulation and discomfort is something I was taught to avoid. But if I was going to like be in comfort, what am I going to like lay around eating Cool Ranch Doritos all day and watching like reruns of Happy Days? Like, Shit's got to go down, you know? We got to get some things done today, you know? So those shocks, which I love that you've highlighted them in ways of like having a cold shower, something so simple, and that it actually gets us out of our comfort zone, which I think is really valuable. Yeah, I just think it's full stop, so valuable. I could go down like just a rabbit hole with that one. But what I love is you're saying that 
when someone is able to create a shock in their life, that it actually makes them really present. And does that allow you to get more in contact with your higher self? Doing the little shocks? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think you can without it. I think that shocks are so important. And I actually do think that the universe gives us external shocks more often and we're unable to deal with them when we're not taking on daily shocks. If we don't take on conscious shocks and do them ourselves, that life is going to give them to us. Oh, so it's almost like it's flexing a muscle, like it's learning through those little shocks of how, and then you're able to get bigger shocks and then you're able to deal with those shocks in a different way. Is that right? Yeah, but you also get less shocks, less bigger shocks. Oh. So it's kind of like a choice and or. Like when I was not doing any of these things, my house burned down, my baby died, like shit was going shock after shock after shock because the universe is still communicating with you. But if you're not actively communicating with it, then it's going to get louder. <laughs> ah, which is what we often hear that like when things are going bad, if you're not changing it or pivoting or facing those challenges, the messages just get louder and bigger and stronger and more full on. Yes, that's a shock. Those are That's shocks. a shock. So when you take on little shocks yourself and choose shocks, then you get less external shocks. And when you do get a big shock, like when my house burnt down, you're just like, okay, what is the memo? It's not like so intense. Like, woe is me, I should go drink. It's just kind of like, okay, let's hear it. What are you trying to tell me? Which is such a much more powerful way to be. Like you're so much more in a place of, not that it necessarily has to be surrender, but it doesn't sound like there's so much fighting against what's happening. It's more being from a place of in power, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds pretty influential for 2020, if not for our entire lives, clearly, because we are living a life full of shocks. But it sounds like for this year, that's be pretty lovely way to be able to look at everything that's coming towards us and has hit us in this year and how to move through it with grace. For sure. Mm. So speaking to you, you sound like you very much have your life together. Your feet are very firmly planted on the ground and you're very present to your pain and your happiness. And you sound like not a lot rocks you, especially from what you're just talking about, like your house just burnt down and you're in this place of like, okay, got this. And we are all human. Can you share with us when a pivot didn't go right for you or when there was a transition that didn't work for you and what you learned from it? I get much more like thrown off my groove with smaller things than I do with larger things because I had a very chaotic life growing up, lots of pain, lots of tragedies. And so I'm kind of used to that. I'm not so used to like mundane day-to-day like life stuff. So sometimes I get thrown by that. I get thrown by rejection. Typically, I get rejected quite often in my life because I'm an entrepreneur. And so there's tons of times where messages get thrown off or people are strange or they say weird things to me or they're just like, they don't see me and they're like, no, it's just a no. And no, it still does. I think it still does. I just don't see it as a bad thing anymore. Like I'm grateful for my particular Achilles heels. Everyone has their own. For me, rejection and vanity and power have always been kind of my like weak spots. And so I find that actually I do a lot more learning now in the positive zones than I used. I used to do a lot more rejection. Now I do a lot more positive zones. So like I'll be on a huge podcast or I'll be interviewed for some television thing or huge opportunities are coming my way. And I find that that's actually also very, it's the same, but it's just the opposite side of the same kind of trigger because it's really touching that same nerve of, am I valuable enough? Am I good enough? Do I matter? And I may not have any concerns about that today, but little Biet, who is like living in the tenements of Queens and like, doesn't know how she's going to get out or younger Biet, who's like a heroin addict and lost and broke and confused and jealous of everyone. Like she doesn't know. I think that we're always all of these versions of ourselves. Like every single Zoe that ever lived is with you right now. And so if something goes right or if something goes wrong in your life, those Zoe's like may not be able to feel like they can handle that stuff. So I get thrown a lot by stuff that triggers childhood wounds for me, like things that I just have not recovered from, like the death of my family or 
the what's that word abuse that I suffered. I just think those things have been so instrumental. And I again, I just I don't think that makes me a bad person or anyone who's listening to this who's like having a similar experience. There's nothing wrong with you being someone who lived a whole life, you know, and has PTSD from that. Yeah, we definitely learn so much from those, don't we? Yeah. So right now, tell us what exciting projects you're working on or you want people to know about. I know that you mentioned a little something to me. I'd love to hear and I'd love other people to know about it too. I have a new record coming out. I don't know when because the producer's trapped in quarantine in a way that's making it very hard for him to complete the record. But we recorded in New York when I was there before lockdown. And so that's coming. And, you know, the book is still going wild and strong. It's, you know, best selling book. I'm very excited to share that with the world. And I just posted on Instagram that I'm launching out for private clients, which is very rare. It's kind of like very strange when those opportunities occur. So that's something that I do is I work with a few select people. I like to work with people who are really, really up to shit in the world because it's very helpful to me to feel like I'm part of something that's like already influencing many people and I want to be a part of that. So that's happening. Mm. Yeah, but... I never know what's going to come next. As soon as they let us get it back on plane, you know, we'll see. For me, what I love and something that I've been reading a lot about is this, the hero's journey. We go through these major changes and then we kind of hit this abyss and then we have this like death rebirth that pulls us into transformation. And for others listening to your story and how you've navigated this and how you show up in the world, do you have any words of wisdom for people who are facing fear, anxiety, or major transitions right now? Yeah, I would just say like, you really want to look at the truth of how you're lying to yourself. Because if you're lying to yourself, it's not going to be effective. It doesn't matter how much fear you endure, doesn't matter how much poverty, doesn't matter how much adversity or suffering or abuse or rape or tragedy or yearning or pain, it doesn't matter. None of that stuff will be useful unless you actually use it. So it's like there for you and you either see it and see yourself really as you are, which is broken and lost, or you just go on bullshitting yourself and everyone else around you. So those are your real choices. And I think that if you can truly see how hideous you look in those moments of fear and stress and agony, if you can see the hideousness of that and taste it, it gives you this incredible, incredible miracle moment because they're so close. The ugliest you is right next to the most beautiful you. And so it's if you're not willing to see the ugliest parts of yourself, you're never going to see the most beautiful because they're right next to each other and they're right, they're really part of the same thing, really. But if you're not willing to look, you're always looking away, always looking away, always saying, oh, that's not me. I'm not ugly then you're never going to see how beautiful you are. You're never going to see your potential. You're never going to see what you're capable of or what you came here to create. That's so beautiful to finish on. Thank you, Viet. That's wonderful. Thank you. And I have just at the end, a little set of rapid fire questions. Just a couple fun ones. You ready to go? I'm ready. Number one, the moment you first felt like an adult. Never. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. Sometimes I feel like an adult as a mom of a toddler and like having a two-year-old these last few years have been, felt very adulty in that way, but I don't feel like I don't do it in any way that's even remotely adulty. Feel you on that one. Two, favorite can't help but dance in the kitchen kind of song. What do you like to like? So in love with you. What is that one? Whatever you want to do. Is all you never do that to me. I don't even know who sings that, but that's like that's, baby. Yeah, I think that they used it in like Pulp Fiction or something, right? Like one of those. It's one of those Tarantino. Want mm -hmm. to spend my life with you? Oh, stay together. Third one, guilty pleasure. Guilty pleasure. Oh, I like really love 80s movies. I'm like obsessed with St. Elmo's Fire and oh, yeah. Pretty in Pink. I don't know if it's guilty, but it's definitely cheese. Cheese, cheese central. 
I also listen to Carly Simon and Phil Collins. I like actively listen to them. I'm with you on that. I just listened to like a Phil Collins song and my friend was like, turn that off. It's hideous. I was like, it's Phil. It's Phil. Phil. <laughs> it's Phil. Like Susu Studio. <laughs> oh my God. I'm all in it. I'm in it. <laughs> now I know you're in Denver, but do you have a favorite New York breakfast spot? I rarely eat breakfast out. Okay. But I think what do you eat out? What do you go out for then? Dinner is my favorite, like out. What's your dinner spot then? There's so many good restaurants, but I'm gonna give I'm gonna give people the breakfast because you asked for breakfast. Okay, we, okay. Sundays and Sundays in Brooklyn is a really good. Have you been there? No. It's phenomenal. It's in South Williamsburg, and it's just like a really good breakfast. They make a mean. They make a mean breakfast. Okay. Is there anything you do differently that you would do differently in your life? I think I would be like further along in my career or whatever if I had done things differently as a kid, but I don't think I would change it. I really think there's like a beautiful like tapestry to how our lives actually unfold. And last one, fill in the blank for me. Meditation is? Meditation is gorgeous and radical. It's a radical act. Thank you so much, Viet, for I really appreciate you sharing your story and showing up in all your honesty and truth and for really showing people the magic of moving through the fire and to really inspire us that it's not easy, but it's possible. Thank you also for I like honestly the Zen AF and Broken. That is beautiful and the access to meditations and music and your books and the work of the fourth way work is just there's such gifts and you should be so proud to put those into the world thank you thank you so if you want to find out more about Biet, you can visit the podcast page on seekerloverdreamer.com or you can check out the episode notes to find Biet, to follow Biet, and to find out more about her book don't just sit there and all the other good juicy things that Biet is doing so thank you again so much for your time Biet. and yeah i hope you have an incredible rest of your time in Denver, Colorado, and that you get to soak up all the mountains over there. Thank you. Thank you. That's Beat Simkin, meditation leader, breathwork teacher, and author of Don't Just Sit There. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show and for joining me in exploring the upside of the unexpected to see that life isn't a straight line. And thank goodness, because that is where the magic in life lies. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast, and you can find all the links and resources from this episode in the episode notes. If you have any feedback or want to send me a note, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Send me a DM on Instagram at didn't see that coming underscore underscore. I'm Zoe Weldon, and you've been listening to Didn't See That Coming. Until next time, keep looking for the magic on the other side of the unexpected.